We have devious little men that plan simulations. They plan to do everything wrong so that they can mess everybody up. So when we got to the real mission, it seemed like a piece of cake, really. My guest today was at the heart of the US space program, a solo female figure in a team full of men. She calculated the return to Earth trajectories for Apollo 8, the first mission to leave Earth's orbit and circle the moon. And she was also involved in the rescue of the Apollo 13 astronauts. Following her career with NASA, she retrained as a lawyer, becoming an attorney focusing on women's rights. These days, at the age of 78, she's an election judge in Harris County, Texas. It's an act of faith, she says, in the sense that you've got to believe that elections matter. I'm Emma Nelson. This is The Big Interview. Poppy Northcutt, a very warm welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Growing up in Texas, at what point does your gaze head skyward and you decide that this is where your focus is? Well, growing up, I never really thought about working in the space program. It wasn't until after I finished studying at the University of Texas, I graduated and I started looking for a job. I wanted one in the Houston area. And I ended up getting a job offer at a contractor for for NASA, TRW Systems. I was hired in at TRW as what was called a computerist, which I thought was a weird job title at the time. I know now that 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 job title has quite a history to it going back into World War II and even even earlier than that, using women uh, with mathematical skills and calling them computresses or computers. In terms of the workforce, in technical terms, uh, the workforce was almost entirely male. So the work that was involved, we, we did have high-speed computers at the time. They weren't high-speed compared to what you think of as high-speed now, but they were very high-speed for the time. But the working with computers at that time was mainly working with batch processors rather than real-time computers. So you had entry that was done, you know, you'd write it out on these green grid sheets and then it would be key punched in and then it would be run in a batch. So you might not get your answer back until the next day as they ran a lot of the stuff overnight. And yes, we did do a lot of calculations, not really so much by hand, but using hand calculators and things like that. It's not like I was sitting around multiplying and adding stuff by hand. You're surrounded by men, and all of the engineers are men. How different did that make you feel? I was certainly aware of it, and I was certainly aware of the lack of women in the the area, mainly my main thought was, after being there for a few months, was looking around and thinking, I'm as smart as these guys. I should be earning as much as they should. The pay was considerably less. Being governed by the wage-hour laws while professionals were exempt was, uh, well, it limited the amount. There were discriminatory laws on the books about how hourly workers were handled based on gender that were limiting in terms of really how much overtime a woman could work. I'm sure they they viewed them as protective laws. I viewed them as laws that restricted how much you could earn. Tell me a little bit about what the situation in, in NASA is like at this time. And we're in the middle of the 60s. The Russians are winning the space race. They've got the first satellite up there. They've got the first man in space. They've got the first man in orbit. 
NASA is on the back foot. What was that like? Well, it was a very competitive environment. We were very committed to putting the first human on the on the moon, first man on the moon, literally. And it was a fairly high stress environment. Everyone was, you know, very mission oriented. Now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. Let's move to your work on the Apollo missions. You designed the return to Earth trajectory that the Apollo 8 crew take from the moon back to Earth. For those of us whose brains will never even halfway approach that, how do you approach that? I mean, first of all, you have to understand that very little was done individually. So I was part of a team of people that built, you know, designed a a software computer program that did those calculations. It's a three-body problem, and it's a very hard technical problem to solve, much more difficult than coming back to the Earth from Earth orbit. So it took months, years, actually, to get a working program. What we were trying to do was to optimize situations. We, we really wrote what was called at the time an abort program. It was not originally called the Return to Earth program because it was anticipated that it would be used whether you were talking about coming back under normal situation or coming back under an abort situation. It was a very challenging work, a lot of detail to it, but also very rewarding. The basic orbital problem is that, or our trajectory problem is that you have everything moving. You've got the Earth moving around the sun, you have the moon moving around the Earth, and you have the spacecraft moving between them. So everything is moving. And uh, trying to optimize in that situation is just very difficult in terms of calculation. If you're, if you're talking about returning from, to the Earth from an Earth orbit, you can pretty much sort of eliminate all of the motion except, you know, you're, you're just talking about the spacecraft relative to the Earth because all of that together is moving around the sun. It's not like you have as much independent motion going on. So that's why it's so much more difficult. You might compare it to driving around. For example, say if you're in a pub and you're trying to throw a dart at the dartboard, the only thing you're having to worry about is, you know, the dart and the dartboard, okay? Throwing the two things. But what what if you were instead on a moving vehicle trying to hit a dartboard that itself was on another moving vehicle? You can see how the the complexity of that just increases tremendously. There's a little video of you on the internet when you're interviewed. I think it's in 1969. Poppy, can we play it to you and get your reaction from it? I think you're being asked about the Apollo 8 and 10 missions. The missions were so nominal that you almost couldn't believe that it was happening. We had been simulating these things for so long, and everything goes wrong in the simulations. You have devious little men that plan simulations. They plan to do everything wrong so that they can mess everybody up. So when we got to the real mission, it seemed like a piece of cake, really. 
Poppy, do you still stand by that idea that the Apollo 8 and 10 missions were a piece of cake compared with what you'd had to go through in all the practices? Yeah, really, truly. I mean, almost all the missions end up being so much easier than the simulations because, as I said in that clip, I mean, the whole purpose of simulations is to push the envelope, test you, try to, you know, give you the really difficult situations to solve. There were some, you know, individual things during the missions that were particularly uh, worrisome. In Apollo 8, I think for me, the most nerve wracking thing was waiting for them to come out of the from the backside of the moon after they did the uh, lunar orbit insertion because they were a little bit late coming out. So we were in a situation where we're waiting and wondering what happened behind the moon. Uh, but other than that, Apollo 8 was extremely nominal. Mission Commander Frank Borman, Command Module Pilot James Lovell, and Lunar Module Pilot Bill Anders would be the first men to travel over one quarter million miles away from their home planet to orbit the moon. Poppy, let's move on to Apollo 13. This obviously is the mission that becomes the stuff of legend and of film. And you are at the heart of extracting the crew and getting them back to Earth after the oxygen tank fails. Can you just talk us through this? Because obviously we'd like to know step by step about how this happened. How do you first find out that there's something wrong? Actually, I had been at the Cape. I had gone and watched launch. I'd never seen a launch before and I wanted to see a launch. 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. Ignition sequence has started. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have commit and we have liftoff at 2.13. The Saturn V building up to 7.6 million pounds of thrust and it has cleared the tower. And I don't normally, I didn't normally go to work until after they got relatively close to the moon. So, you know, I had time to fly to Florida and then fly back. So I had flown down, I'd seen the launch, I flew back, basically was at home chilling, uh, you know, not expecting to go into work for another day. And I got a call from a television reporter, and that's the first that I knew that anything had happened. He had my home phone because he had done an interview with me. So uh, he called and told me what had happened and wanted to know whether they had to fly behind the moon in order to come back or whether they could just turn around. What's your reaction when you're told about this in those circumstances? Well, of course, I was shocked that something bad had gone on, but you know, I knew the answer to his question. All I had to do was find out. I asked him, how, where were they location-wise? How far out were they from the Earth? He told me that, and I told him he, they had to fly by, that, that trying to turn around and come back at the distance they were at was too fuel-intensive and actually wouldn't increase the speed at which they got home. So what do you do then? I thought, isn't it odd that I haven't gotten called <laughs> from my team? So I got dressed and I went over there. And uh, as it turned out, I had an unlisted phone number and uh, the team that was there didn't know how to reach me. 
the basic question at that point was, uh, do they do they do a maneuver? That particular mission was the first mission they had ever had where they were not on what was called a free return trajectory. On all the previous missions, if you didn't go into lunar orbit, your trajectory was calculated so you would fly behind the moon and you would go ahead and return on a safe return back to the Earth. It'd be a long trip, but you would come back to the Earth and re-enter. That particular mission was planned to be a little higher inclination orbit about the moon, so the outgoing trip, the lunar part of the trip, was not uh, free return. So the first question really was, were they going to uh, do a do a small maneuver to try to change the trajectory they were on just so they would get back on a free return back to the Earth? And they had pretty much made the decision to do that at the time that I went in, which was a, a you know a reasonable thing. The next thing was to try to calculate the best way to do the return after uh, doing that mid-course correction to get on a free return. Odyssey Houston, uh, standing by for your uh, noun 67. Uh, when you get it, over. Shoot, should be out. A report of uh, two good rogues coming up now for main shoots. There they are. There they are. They've made it. Yeah. All three shoots out. Listen to the crowd on the boat. An extremely loud applause here in Mission Control. An extremely loud applause as Apollo 13 on uh, main shoots comes through loud and clear on the television display here. It was a high-stress situation primarily for our team just because of the, the general uncertainty about the condition of the vehicle. But you simulate, and that's part of the reason you do all of these simulations. So I wasn't that aware of the stress at the time. You just click into your, uh, you know, get it done attitude and focus on the job at hand. Let's move on to your next career, because you leave spaceflight and NASA's involvement and you retrain as a lawyer. Why do you do that? I had become active in the women's rights movement during that time period. And, you know, the, the space program in terms of lunar missions uh, that were crewed as well as Mars missions, I mean, all of that was sort of coming to an end. So, you know, it wasn't as challenging for me. And uh, I had become more and more interested in civil rights issues at the time. So I went back to law school. I uh, clerked for a federal judge right after law school, and then I ended up in uh, the district attorney's office in Harris County doing uh, criminal prosecutions. And then after that, I did criminal defense work. But I always worked on women's rights issues along the way. I was the first felony prosecutor in the domestic violence unit when that unit was first set up, for example. You talk about being a woman in a man's world when you're working with NASA. Is that what prompts you to go into women's rights activism? Yes, it was. I mean, that combined with the fact that because I managed to get a little ahead of that, I managed to get out of the stereotypical role for women and and get into 
uh, you know, being better paid and, and better opportunities, I felt like I had an obligation to help other women who weren't in that kind of a favorable situation. I felt like I could take risks in terms of speaking out that other women might not be able to take. One of the things that perhaps you don't know is that I escort at a local abortion clinic. In fact, I organized, I was the person who initially organized the escorts at that clinic to help women get past the protesters and into the clinic. So obviously having access to safe and legal abortion is very important to me personally. Uh, In terms of what's going on with the Supreme Court, they have basically abandoned stare decisis. There are a whole lot of basic civil rights that are on the chopping block with that court. The Voting Rights Act is in great peril. I think that gay rights are are also in great peril. All of the things that come under the idea of privacy rights are under great peril with this court, uh, which includes contraceptive rights, uh, abortion rights, uh, as I I mentioned, uh, marriage equality for the LGBTQ community. I think the anti-discrimination laws that we have on the books are under peril. They approved a Texas statute that allowed this particular statute was restricting abortion rights very, very severely by a mechanism of allowing sort of vigilante law instead of the state enforcing the prohibition against abortion that the legislature passed. The legislature provided for individuals to enforce it by seeking huge monetary damages in our courts which was a direct runaround, the constitutional protection, that precedent uh, lays the groundwork for all kinds of mischief of of state legislatures that don't want to be guided by federal law doing these vigilante actions where they do it via civilian or, or individual enforcement, putting almost anything that you would have as federal legislation up for grabs in terms of is it can you just walk around it or does federal law is federal law actually law for the land i think we have just horrifying precedents coming out of the supreme court your involvement in the abortion clinic how did that come about i think i said that you know throughout working as a lawyer, I've always been involved in something involving women's rights. I I had worked as a uh, referral lawyer for an organization called Jane's Due Process for some time, uh, since the late 1990s, as someone who would assist uh, pregnant teenage girls in going to court in order to access safe and legal abortion without having to involve their parents in, in making the decision. So I had... Uh, lots of familiarity with the clinics in in the Houston area is that as a result of that. So uh, I, I got involved escorting. I had escorted off and on at various times, but particularly in organizing escorts at this one clinic because I was over there seeing one of these teenage girls and the doc at the clinic said they were beginning to have lots of problems with protesters and he wanted to know if I could do anything 
or knew anybody that could help. And I said, yeah, I can help. And uh, so I organized some folks. And what's it like having dealt with such a cool and calculating operation with your work in NASA to deal with, again, there's a strict framework with the law, but to suddenly deal with intensely painful human moments? I just find them highly engaging. I suppose I'm easily bored, so having something that's stressful like that keeps me awake, you know, keeps me from getting bored. Poppy, let's move on to the last 10 years. You've been a Harris County election judge. You're the person who presides over a polling location. What's that like? Well, it's it's uh, fun and challenging. It, it's a combination of, at times, of tedium and uh, also of just a, acute stress. Because some elections are very slow. You have very few people turning out to vote. So you're basically, you know, not busy at all. And then if you have like a presidential year where you have lots and lots and lots of people showing up to vote, then you you have people with all kinds of different problems. They maybe uh, they're in the wrong polling place. And uh, for some reason, their name isn't on the electoral rolls and you have to manage to find out what the problem is. Maybe they really are registered to vote, but for some reason, there's a problem finding them on the rolls. So it's very stressful in a big election because you just have so many people trying to get in vote. You want to try to facilitate that for everybody. You've talked about the electoral process and the fact that people need to have confidence in it because otherwise people won't bother to vote. And you have mentioned the rise in the influence of Vladimir Putin. What are your thoughts on what's happening? I think it's very distressing that... uh, we we have someone who's engaging in so much interference in other countries' business, especially their electoral business. My understanding is that there's been problems in Great Britain as well with influence campaigns coming out of Russia. And when you see now Russia becoming the world's great enemy again, how do you feel given the fact that you were working at some of the most intense moments in the Cold War? I think it's very disappointing. Uh, In the space program, we managed to reach over the years, you know, working arrangements. So, you know, the International Space Station has Russians as well as Americans and people from various places. I think it's a real shame that we can't reach those kinds of kind of level of cooperation and respect in terrestrial matters. And your jobs for so long have involved moments of high stress that we've talked about. But At every turning, there seems to be some thread through all this, which is that you are exploring both fairness and opportunity, whether it's advancing within a man's world at NASA or working within women's rights in the law. What is it that drives you there? Well, I think you just mentioned it. I mean, it's a desire for fairness uh, for everybody concerned. And also it's just the challenge of it. I really like the challenge of trying to... uh, make systems work and work better. Poppy, you have worked with NASA. You have been a lawyer. You are an election judge. What do you really want to do when you grow up? I still haven't figured that out. (laughs) Maybe I want to be a brain surgeon. Who knows? (laughs) Poppy, when you see the legal system in the United States coming under intense political pressure with women's rights at stake in the challenges to the landmark Road versus Wade judgment. How do you react to that? 
Well, I'm really pretty horrified about what's going on with the United States Supreme Court. It's not just the Roe v. Wade decision either. And finally, Poppy, what makes you hopeful? Well, at the moment, I'm not terribly hopeful. As I said, I've got we've got a Supreme Court that is just out of control, I think. But, you know, overall, I'm hopeful in, in, in the sense that I think that people can be slow to figure things out and to understand how things are imperiled. But eventually they do figure it out. And I think Americans are beginning to figure out that they really took a hugely wrong path to uh, elect Donald Trump, for example, who's the one who put all of these, most of these really horrible justices on the Supreme Court from the United States. And, you know, slowly but surely they're figuring out that that was really a bad path. So I am hopeful that people do you know, figure it out and and do change their direction. Poppy Northcutt, thank you so much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle 24. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It's produced by Emma Searle, edited by Steph Chungu and researched by Lillian Fawcett. For now, though, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.